There's a kind of frustration that we all have experienced when we've been reading a magazine article, or perhaps we've been watching one of our favorite television shows. And at the end of the article, or at the end of the show, we find ourselves pulled up short by the words, to be continued. Frustrating, isn't it? The guy's just ready to catch a big tuna. To be continued. Or maybe he doesn't say that, but it's left implied that it's going to happen next episode. And either something good or something awful looks like it's about to happen. And then we're left with a cliffhanger. To be continued. And these words, they either imply something ominous or something wonderful is about to happen. And what a comfort it is to remember that the Lord's goodness and the Lord's mercy is to be continued. As we come to the end of the most famous of David's Psalms, it is a sheer delight when we come to the end of that Psalm and we read David's conclusion. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After all that we have experienced in the long years of our pilgrimage, even the oldest among us, we can testify that we have not outlived the goodness of God. From beginning to end, we have experienced his goodness, his benevolence to us. And what is true of us in our individual lives has also been true for, since the beginning of the world. At the very beginning, when God made everything, he saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And ever since that day, God's providential goodness, it has been an endless chain of goodness to his creatures. And it is something that follows us as pilgrims all of our days. It is a star that shines and leads us to the house of the Lord. And there we will dwell forever. All the volumes that record the outworking of God's goodness, they're just installments along the way of a divine goodness that is to be continued. And that's not a frustration, but that's a delight to us. That to be continued is incomparable. Now, in our last two sermons, we've been looking at our royal ancestors, the first pair that were created. And in verses 26 and 28, we have a description of their dominion, their royal sovereignty over the entire created order below. And then in verse 27, we have a description of their genders. God made them male and female, and this was the subject of our sermon, our last sermon in this series. Now this morning, we're going to look at these royal ancestors and we're going to look at two more things about them. We're going to look at their propagation, and then we will consider, and we'll do this more briefly, at their diet. And then we will consider the conclusion of the whole account in verse 31, then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. We begin with what's the second point in the outlines that have been passed out, which is really our first point this morning. We want to look at their propagation. In verse 28, we read at the beginning, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Like the animals that were over the first pair, over which the first pair reigned, at the very moment of their creation, God gave them power to re reproduce themselves. These animals could reproduce themselves, and likewise the first pair, Adam and Eve. But there are two things that were different about Adam and Eve and their reproduction. And one distinction of human reproduction is that it involves the reproduction of people that are made in God's image. Adam and Eve were both made in the image of God. And immediately they had this amazing privilege of bringing into the world other beings that were made in the image of God. That's not something that was a privilege granted to any of the animals. And of course, none of his creatures can duplicate God's creative power. That's not what we do by way of imitation. But as God's filled the heaven and the earth with a starry host, as he fills the whole earth with animate life, with 
creatures of all kinds. Adam and Eve, in a sense, now they were to, to be imitating God and filling the earth through reproduction. The most amazing aspect of this privilege is that it involves bringing little ones into this world that are image bearers of God. And then there was something else that was distinct about human reproduction. And it's that it's explicitly connected with an expression, a spoken expression of God's blessing. We read, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now back in verse 20, God says, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. It doesn't say he, he blessed these waters. It, he just says, let the waters, as it were, uh, abound with these creatures. And here at this place about Adam and Eve with their reproduction, he doesn't say, well, let the earth abound with human beings. That's not what he says here. Now, it's true that in verse 22, his creation of the sea creatures and the wind creatures is connected with a blessing. But here in verse 28, God speaks to intelligent creatures who can understand a blessing, who can appreciate what he is saying. He can appreciate their ability to reproduce as an expression of that blessing. And this demonstrates man's unique relationship with his creator. God and man communicate. They speak with one another. They hear and they speak back and forth. So the blessing of human procreation is an expression of this unique personal relationship with God. The God who had already had a personal relationship within his triune being, he now makes human beings in such a way that their fellowship would also be something that would be enjoyed among themselves and fellowship with God would also be enjoyed by them. Now, I want to pause for a moment to try to clear something up. In connection with this charge, where God says, be fruitful and multiply, etc., I want to point out that some of the older versions, including the King James, can be confusing at this point. Because instead of saying, fill the earth, they read, replenish the earth. Now, to the modern ear, the idea of replenishing something gives you the idea of replacing something that got empty. You know, your fridge is getting full, or it's getting empty. Time to go get groceries, to replenish, to fill again. You fill again, you see, a fridge. And this has been used by the gap theorists to teach that man had to refill the earth that allegedly had grown empty because of a terrible catastrophe that took place in a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And to refresh our memories, the, the whole theory, it argues that in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. This, it refers to a condition that was the result of a catastrophe. And that's why I have all these fossils that are buried, all these human beings and so forth, all this stuff that's happened it, it, over billions of years. And they say, this is how we can interpret all these things. There is this condition that was a result of a catastrophe, maybe millions, perhaps even billions of years ago. And some even suppose that there was a pre-Adamic race that previously filled the earth. And so now they say God's going to refill the earth. He had it full before with human beings and all these other creatures. Now he's going to replenish it. So they interpret that word. But the Hebrew word that's translated replenish in the King James, it simply means to fill or be filled. And even the King James Version, it translates this word fill or make full 195 times. And only seven other times does it translate it replenish. And this is because a few centuries ago, the prefix re, it didn't mean what it means to us when it's added at the beginning of the word. It didn't signify again. In other words, replenish, that would mean, yeah, replenish would be fill again. It didn't mean it back then when, the, when he had a, a, the prefix re, R-E. For instance, the word research nowadays, it doesn't mean search again. If you're assigned a, a research project, it doesn't mean, well, we've got to go on a search project now to go find these people again. That's not what we're doing. We're not searching all over again, doing something a second time. That's not what research is. 
It means search completely. That's the idea of research. And that's even back in King James' days what this word replenish meant. It was to fill really full. And it wasn't being to replenish in the sense of something that got empty that needs to be filled once again. Now, having explained the meaning of this directive, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, I want to underscore three areas of application. The first area of application pertains to marital fruitfulness. Being fruitful and filling the earth, it took place when Adam and Eve had children, and when the descendants of Adam and Eve continued to have children. And in this verse, this fruitfulness, it is this, this fruitfulness through having children, it is connected with subduing the earth and having dominion over the earth. God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so God's command to Noah is almost identical. He says, after the flood, God blesses him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Almost identical words, chapter 9 and verse 1. And his commentator Kasudo paraphrases what God says to Adam and Eve. He, he puts it this way. Although you were only two, yet your fruitfulness, through your fruitfulness and through your increase, your descendants will fill the land and subdue it. And this reminds us that a major purpose of marriage is having children. And this means that marital intercourse is God's invention. It predated the fall. And therefore, it's part of what God says was very good in verse 31. But this is only so in connection with its God-ordained context, which is marriage, which Genesis 1 makes plain is only to be between a man, one man, and one woman. And this is one of the ways in which man is different from animals. In his commentary on this verse, John Calvin, he says this, Now what I have said concerning marriage must be kept in mind, that God intends the human race to be multiplied by generation indeed, but not as in brute animals by promiscuous intercourse. There's a difference between the way human beings are to reproduce and the way animals reproduce. You don't have a big bull that fights for a harem like they do in the wild. That's not God's intention. It's, it's a man and a woman. They reproduce within the context of marriage. And of course, this doesn't mean that everybody has to marry or else they're out of God's will. It doesn't mean that every marriage results in producing children. There's sometimes barrenness and other things that prevent it. But rather, it means that having children and filling the earth, this is part of God's plan for humanity as a whole. And this passage, it teaches us, therefore, that marital intimacy is good. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul urges husbands and wives to render each other's due in this respect. And so this teaches us that marital intimacy, it's not something inherently dirty or unclean. In fact, it's one of the God-given ways by which we are kept from temptation of seeking this kind of intimacy outside of our marriages. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, don't deprive one another except to, for consent for a, for, with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come again together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, in addition to the way that marital intimacy strengthens the bonds between a husband and his wife. It is God's general purpose that this intimacy produce children. And the modern idea, therefore, of both husband and wife making it their first priority to get ahead in life, and that children get in the way of these careers, this modern idea, or this idea that you need to have a government now set up a daycare center and take care of everybody's children because both husband and wife, they have to have a full-time career for the rest of their lives. This whole idea is contrary to what we learn from Genesis 1 and from the rest of Scripture. True happiness and fulfillment, it comes through giving. 
giving ourselves to each other as husband and wife, but also giving, expending ourselves in the rearing of children that God will give us. And it's pure selfishness that sets up a totally different goal. And Satan would tempt you to suppose that happiness is going to come from intimacy without the unselfish commitment required by marriage. He'll tempt you to, to think that way. Have, have a little of the pleasure now without the commitment. Or he will tempt you to selfishly pursue, you see, a career rather than unselfishly raise children. And so, dear young people, your own selfish desires and the example of the world and Satan himself, they all conspire against you to lure you to make a selfish choice. But at the end, the way of selfishness is the way of misery. Just look at the lives of people that seem to have it all. They pursue the selfish idea that a romantic relationship should result in meeting all of your selfish desires, finding that soulmate that's going to make you feel good in every way, that's going to give you pleasure and give you self-fulfillment. These people that pursue such relationships, and that's their primary goal, they're among the most miserable people on earth. That's why they're always hopping from one marriage to another, from one relationship to another, and putting off having children because they want to pursue their miserable, self-centered goals. Satan holds out the bait, the pleasures of illicit love, the attainment of selfish goals, and he always conceals the hook. He always conceals the misery that comes from living for yourself and yourself alone and pleasures that you will get. Well, this is the first implication I wanted to stress, the issue of marital fruitfulness. And the second practical implication of this command, be fruitful and multiply, it pertains to the whole subject of population growth. We have a question that comes to us as we read about filling the earth with human beings. Could God's command to multiply lead to overpopulation? What if Adam and Eve had never sinned? People never died, so they'd live longer. The earth would get populated a lot faster. What if this took place? Wouldn't this lead to more people than the earth could sustain? And if we truly believe God, we have to say, of course, we have to say no. God wouldn't say to do something that uh, he, he can't take care of. God explicitly adds his command to multiply that Adam and Eve and their descendants would, as through their multiplying, that they would fill the earth. And even now, as the population of the earth approaches 8 billion people, we are still a long way for overpopulating this earth. A long ways from it. And even though people have been fear-mongering about this for a long time. Way back in 1798, Thomas Robert Malthus, he warned that the population of the earth was growing faster than the earth's ability to provide subsistence for mankind. And then more recently in Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Explosion, which came out in 1968, the author makes this alarmist statement. The battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, this is 68, he's making this prophecy. In the 1970s, the world will go undergo famine. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. Back in the 70s, that was his prophecy. And therefore he advocated, you see, coercive population control through abortion and through other things to keep the population down. But despite the fact that his prophecies were incredibly wrong, he's still a hero to many of these population control fearmongers. These, these doom and gloom alarmists, that they also want to advocate, you see, these coercive policies. And we could go on to cite Al Gore and a whole bunch of other people that have gone on this bandwagon of let's keep the population down and so forth. But given the fact that this doomsday alarmism has been around for a long time, we should be a little bit skeptical, shouldn't we? There are vast swaths of the earth that are still uninhabited or almost completely uninhabited and uncultivated. And it is a simple fact that to date, population growth has been good for the world. 
In 2006, Nicholas Eberstadt, who holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, he pointed out in an article, the article was entitled Doom and Demography. And this is what he wrote. Troubled as the world may be today, it is incontestably less poor, less unhealthy, less hungry than it was 30 years ago. And this positive association between world of population growth, still citing his words, and material advance, it goes back at least as far as the beginning of the 20th century. You see what he's saying? The more people we have on the earth, the better it is, the less hunger there is, and so forth. And how is this so? Well, the reason for this, dear people, is that God made man in his own image with abilities that surpass other creatures. Now, maybe some of you have watched some of these nature series like Our Own Planet, as narrated by David Attenborough. And you maybe remember that in different episodes, there's a repeatedly a concern is expressed that certain Fish are dying out, or certain animals are dying out, because their food source is dying out. And, but there's a difference here, you see. The major cause of the fact that sometimes there is a decline in population of a particular species, this is related, whether it's a fish or a whale or whatever, it, it has less prey to feed upon. And it has no way of making more prey to feed upon. It's limited by what's available out there. It can't think of making new ways of providing for itself. But God has given you seed to fallen man even. He's made them created in his image. He's given them brains to think. He's given them hands to work. He's given us the abilities, you see, to produce food that in a way is unavailable to animals. And this is why economist Julian Simon called humanity the ultimate resource in his 96th book by that title. And so while population controllers, they think of humans just as mouths to feed and there's not going to be enough to feed them, human beings, they have built-in abilities to figure out how to get the earth to produce more. And so through improved hybrids, improved weed and insect control, through improved soil tillage, improved fertilizer, terracing to keep the land, the topsoil from washing away, through irrigation, the average yield, for instance, now from a field of corn is 125 bushels an acre. And I think in Iowa, I remember some farmers talking about 200 bushels an acre. And this, dear people, is five times greater than it was 70 years ago. They're able to produce five times as much per acre. And who knows what we'll be able to do in years to come. And so this illustrates the truth that the same God who told us to fill the earth, he's able to provide for all of us. And part of it is that he uses the gifts and the abilities that he has given to all of us as human beings. But I want to come to a third practical application of this command to be fruitful and multiply. And this pertains to the issue of racial unity. In his sermons on the main doctrines of Christianity, Theologian Thomas Boston, Presbyterian pastor in Edirick in Scotland. He was a pastor of the early 1700s. He summarizes what Genesis 1, along with the rest of Scripture, teaches about this matter of, of racial unity. And here I want to just quote briefly. He just puts all a little few sentences here. Adam was the male and Eve the female. These were the common parents of all mankind, and there was no man in the world before Adam. He is expressly called the first man, 1 Corinthians 15, and Eve the mother of all living, Genesis 3. And hence it is said, God has made of one blood all nations of men. So he gives a very straightforward, simple synopsis, you see, of what the Bible teaches about the, the relationship between different people groups on the earth. But the straightforward presentation of Scripture, you see, this is too simple for some people. They want to complicate it all. 
And so in 1848, William Van Amrich in the state of New York, he published a work of more than 700 pages, and it's entitled An Investigation of the Theories of the Natural History of Man. And in this work, he affirms that, and here I quote, the mosaic history affords a fair and a very strong presumption that man was divided into several species by the Creator. So like there's different species of animals, you got some dogs, you got cats, so they're human beings that are different species from one another. Horrible idea, but that's what he wrote. And in 1850, Louis Agassiz, he published a work entitled The Diversity of the Origin of the Human Races. And in this, he asserts that Genesis chiefly relates the history of the white race with special reference to the history of the Jews. And strange as it might seem to people that read the scriptures, he asserts, and here I quote again, the history in Genesis in which the branches of the white race only are alluded to, and nowhere the colored race as such. You see, he's talking about race as if they're two totally different races, white and colored, as he puts it. And he even writes this, we challenge those who maintain that mankind originated from a single pair, to quote a single passage in the whole of Scripture pointing at those physical differences, which may be quoted as evidence that the sacred writers considered them as descended from a common stock. He totally disagrees that we all came from Adam and Eve. You see what he's saying? Well, these views are so obviously false, it doesn't take a string of degrees for you to figure out why they're wrong. There's not a slightest hint anywhere in Scripture that there was a race of men prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. And furthermore, the Bible expressly asserts that Adam was the first man. Comparing Adam with Christ, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. It wasn't a pre-Adamic race. It wasn't other people that came around. And this is just the white race story. The first man, it says, he became a living being. And the last Adam, that's Christ, a life-giving spirit. In his sermon on Mars Hill, Paul declares that God has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth. Acts 17, 26. And indeed, there are superficial differences among the various people groups that are on the earth. But the Bible says we're all of the same blood. And I prefer not to even call them different races. I prefer to call different I think it's better to think just of different people groups. I think it's more biblical to think this way, of every person on the face of the earth belonging, you see, to a single race. People from every people group, they can intermarry, they can reproduce. They're not different species that can't reproduce together. We are not different species, as Van Amrich declares a moment ago. And the DNA differences are infinitesimally small. Even the difference between skin color is simply a matter of how much melanin is in our skin. And one of the greatest promoters of racism, dear people, is the horrible theory of evolution. The idea that's popular in different parts of the world, you see, that people groups were separated for thousands of years, even millions of years, and therefore they evolved differently. And this leads to the racist idea that's, that one so-called race has evolved more than the others. And that's why we're the better ones, and we can look back down upon those ones that didn't evolve so much as we are. That's a horrible theory. It's behind much of the thinking of many people today. And it's exceedingly important that we get it that we all came from one original pair. The simple truth, this simple truth, it is more to obliterate racism, I say, than all the protest marches we saw last year, than all the anti-racist laws that have ever been passed, and all the racial equity programs that have ever been tried to be set up. This simple truth is far more effective. I love what John Calvin wrote in his commentary on Genesis 1.28. God could himself indeed have covered the earth with a multitude of men. You see what he's saying? He could have just said, let the earth swarm with people, just like he did with the fish. He could have done that. But it was his will that we should proceed from one fountain in order that our desire of mutual concord might be the greater 
and that each might have more free, might more freely embrace the other as his own flesh. Beautiful. Well, the fact that there is salvation also in a second Adam and in him only, this also fosters unity and love among us. I'm glad that we don't have a photograph of Jesus, what he looked like. For people that maybe look like him, maybe he had blonde hair, maybe he had black hair. I don't, you, could, you can imagine all kinds of things. But I'm, I'm glad we don't have a photograph because you see the people that, that would think that he's a little bit more like them than, than he is like other people, they would, they would use it, you see, for racist purposes. We, our pride, you see, we think that we're better. That's our, nat- our native uh, attitude. In our stinking pride, we think that our kind is a better kind. And this is the kind of thinking that has plunged whole nations into bloody wars that have devoured millions. The Germans thought they were the pure race, and Hitler played on that. Devoured, millions were killed. The Tutsis hated the Hoodoos because they thought they were better. The Hoodoos thought they were better than the Tutsis in Rwanda. And so in 100 days, 500,000 to 800,000 Tutsis were slaughtered. The total body count was over a million. And those are between people that you would think were basically think of each other as being the same. But there's this idea that, okay, our, we're our people, we're the better ones. And therefore, there was that racism even among them. But you see, believers that have been made sons of God through faith in Christ, they have the strongest reason to love one another. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 3. Well, I can multiply text of Scripture. But surely what I've quoted is enough to lead you to repent of whatever vestiges of racism are in your heart and lead you to love everyone without prejudice, especially those with whom you have been united, not just in your first Adam, but also in the second Adam the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, having considered the propagation of our royal ancestors, we now take up briefly their diet. And their diet is set set forth in verses 29 and 30. Let's read those verses again. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. It's in this area of diet that there is a limitation that God places upon man's dominion. But even in this limitation, they're to be vegetarian. Even in this limitation, he displays his great generosity. Notice the repeated use of the word every in verse 29. Let's read this verse again. And God says, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And, of course, here he doesn't mention the one exception of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That detail is added in chapter 2. But the way these verses begin, behold, see, look what I've done for you, he says. This stresses God's generosity. He wants them to recognize and acknowledge that even before Adam and Eve were brought into being, he prepared a banquet for them. He spread food everywhere for them to eat. Now, notice that at first this diet was a vegetarian diet. Some commentators, they try to stretch what's said here to mean that their diet was ultimately produced by plants, but the plants are just kind of the bottom of the food chain. And and even back then there was animals that ate animals and human beings that ate animals. But if this was the case, then God's covenant with Noah after the flood in Genesis 9 makes no sense. Again, he says in that place, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. God now gives them permission to eat flesh, you see. 
Everything that you think shall be fruit for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. In other words, I gave you the green herbs before. Now I give you flesh. It's so plain. And we notice secondly about this diet that this was non-predatory. God gave the animals as well as man whatever fruits and vegetables they, they could find or they could grow in terms of human beings. But they were not to eat animals at this point. And as one commentator observes, just as man was created with the animals on the same day, so he has been assigned to the same table spread by God. And there's a reason why flesh was not on the menu. To eat meat would have involved killing, would have involved bloodshedding. And death had not come into the world yet. From the biblical narrative, we deduce that man was not given permission to eat animal flesh until the, until the flood that took place in the days of Noah. And this took place long after the fall of Adam and Eve and the entrance of sin and consequently the entrance of death into the world. Now the prophet Isaiah, he anticipates the time when the paradise of Eden will be restored again. And I'd like to just read uh, from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. If you could turn with me to that passage. And this gives us a picture of the Garden of Eden being given again, so to speak. We read in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Similar words are found in brief form in Isaiah 65. Now in these passages, Isaiah is speaking about a future state. And in some ways, it will be the restoration of the idyllic state of the Garden of Eden. And in those days, in the beginning of creation, it was not in red tooth and claw that things were eaten, torn apart, and then eaten. In both passages in Isaiah, they end by stressing a blessed condition that's not true of the present world. God says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You can't, you see, have tigers ripping apart other animals without something hurting, without something being destroyed, without pain and destruction. And those kinds of things entered into the world because of our sins. And yet in the future, this will not take place. Animals that were once were prey, lambs and goats and calves, no longer will fear former predators, wolves and leopards and lions. All of the creatures, again, will be herbivores, just like they were in the Garden of Eden. And furthermore, the curse will be completely removed, for no longer will there be enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent. Even a child can play with a serpent. That passage says, well, Christians that try to harmonize Genesis 1 with evolution, you see, they have a big problem here. The whole idea of the survival of the fittest, in which creatures prey upon one another, this makes God the author of suffering and death, that he sets it up right from the beginning, that animals tear each other apart. Even atheist and leading biologist and Nobel laureate, Yacht Monod, he saw this inconsistency. In an ABC interview, he openly admitted that evolution, this is an evolutionist here, you see, he says that evolution is the more cruel because it is a process of elimination, of destruction. The struggle for life, I'm still quoting, the struggle for life and elimination of the weakest is a horrible process against which our whole modern ethics revolts. An ideal society is a non-selective society, one in which the weakest are protected, and which is exactly the reverse of the so-called natural law. I am surprised, he writes, 
that a Christian would defend the idea that this is the process that God more or less set up in order to have evolution. You see, he's wiser than some of these Christians in pointing out their inconsistency here. Well, I trust you can see that this was a vegetarian world, a non-predatory world, and that, that this was not something that survival of the fittest, this is what's responsible for all the differences between the creatures that are here upon Earth. Well, I want to come now to the conclusion that we have at the end of this chapter. Summed up that everything was very good. Verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good good. In this verse, we have the culmination of the creation week. But this time, God doesn't just call his creation good. This is the seventh time he's called his creation good. But now there is an intensified assessment. It is very good. This is the first time he says very good in this chapter. And the Hebrew expression that's used here, it has the force of being a superlative. In other words, if I want to use bad English, the goodest it could be. What God made was emphatically good, good in the highest sense possible. And this means there was no death or chaos. Not only was there no bloody toothed claw predation, there was none of the chaos depicted in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, remember, that verse says. There were no violent convulsions. There weren't hurricanes back then. There weren't tornadoes back then. The whole earth was perfect harmony and love. And there was no evil, not even the least imperfection of what God made. The addition of this word very, it was all very good. This completely excludes any imperfection. There was, so to speak, perfect agreement between the blueprint in God's mind of what he wanted to accomplish and what he did accomplish. It was perfectly made according to plan. God created a masterpiece, and this masterpiece was complete. Nothing could be added to make it better. At each stage along the way, six times prior to this, God says what he just has made is good. But now he's not only talking about the individual things having been made that are good, but he's talking about all of them together and their relationship together. He's speaking of the symmetry, of the harmony, and the beauty of all the things that he has made perfectly fitting together. He gazes, therefore, with sublime satisfaction on everything that he's made. He sees the creation in its totality. He perceives not only that the details are perfect, taken separately, but he sees that Every one of them harmonizes with the rest. The whole, therefore, is not just good. It is very good, beautifully good. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us at the most fundamental level, dear people, that God is good. The reason why everything God made is good is because it came from the hands of a good God. That's so obvious. Sometimes it's difficult for us to see this because we live in a world that's been defaced and made ugly with sin. And we get glimpses of God's goodness when we're able sometimes to turn our eyes away from the hatred and the strife and the evil that's all around us and gaze upon the majestic mountains, perhaps, the pounding waves of the sea, the brilliance of an autumn landscape, the beauty of an orchid just opening up, we see little glimpses, you see, in these things of God's goodness. We see that goodness when we witness an unusual act of kindness. On her late-night newscast, Shannon Bream was very open about her professed Christianity. She often quotes Scripture. And in other ways, her Christian faith shines out as she gives her newscasts. And one of the ways she does this is by regularly including several stories that depict acts of kindness and goodness. The news has been really dark lately. It's really been discouraging. And especially, I think, that those notes can, can be a, a tremendous testimony. It's, it's our little way of showing that 
that God's light bursts through in the midst of all this darkness and horror that we see all around us. God is good. Therefore, what he's, what's happening around us, that's not God's fault. That's our fault. God is good. Therefore, what he made is good. And when we get to Genesis 3, we're going to see how darkness and evil first invaded the perfectly good world. But when we get to that chapter, we're going to see the essence of Satan's lie is this. This is the opposite of this lesson, that God is good. This is, if you want to boil down Satan's lie, it is this. Sin is good. He tries to get us to think that if we stick to the path of obeying God, we're going to miss out on something that's good. He's holding out on you. That's why he didn't let you eat of that tree. You're missing out on some good year, you see. He tries to wrench us away from the goodness of God. He tries to get us to imagine, you see, that in some way there's some good that sin offers to us that can't be found in God and what God has provided. He uses Hollywood to dress it up as if it's wonderful. He makes an illicit escapade look like the highest expression of love and joy. He dangles objects of covetous desire before our eyes, a dream house, a hot car, a sandals vacation. He kindles admiration in your heart for some of those popular person at school or maybe at, at work. And he tempts you to begin to talk like those people talk and rest like they dress and act like they act. This is good, he says. Be like them. You can be popular too. Dear young people, this is a lie. Don't believe the lie. He says in so many different ways, sin is good. Sin is never good, people. God is good. What God made, what God has given us and ordered us, that is good. But perhaps on the other hand, as I preach, I'm speaking to somebody going through a time in which you are feeling engulfed and overwhelmed by sin and evil. I want to point you away from your sin to God. The goodness of God, it is absolutely infinite. There is not nearly, and here get this point, there is not nearly as much sin in your heart as there is goodness in God. As Culver, Culver well has so wonderfully put it, there is a vaster disproportion between sin and grace than between a spark and an ocean. Who would doubt whether a spark could be quenched by an ocean? Your thoughts of disobedience toward God have been in the compass of time. They're like that little spark he's saying. But his goodness has been bubbling up towards you from all eternity. And so, dear, but dear Christians struggling with sin, or if you're in a situation, you just feel like you're surrounded by darkness and sin and evil and discouraging things. You feel overwhelmed by it all. It's all not good. I want you to remember and know that the goodness of God is like the ocean that can drown out those sparks. He can take care of your sin. And he did so through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does through by the whole power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. He is the ocean of goodness in which you can find goodness once again. And this brings me also to stress in conclusion that the creation account is a call to celebration. Genesis 1, it ends with an expression of exuberant celebration. Behold, he says, it's very good. And the word translated behold, or something that's translated as it's indeed. It, it, excess, it, it, it gives us the idea of excitement. gives us the idea of, of enthusiasm. It's as if God is saying, ah, oh, this is really good here. This is really, really good. Now, sometimes I think we're afraid that if we get enthusiastic in our worship, we'll get charismatic and people will misunderstand. And yes, there's a place in our worship for prostration before God's holiness with awe. That should be part of our worship. The King David who danced before the Lord with all his might. didn't matter whether he got misunderstood in his enthusiasm to celebrate the goodness of God. Mary was accused of being extravagant. She anointed the, 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 the Lord Jesus with, with costly oil. 
And so I wish sometimes that we would get more extravagant with our enthusiasm, with our exuberance in celebrating the goodness and grace of God. And then finally, just one more thing to close with by way of concluding application. We should also through this be in, uh, stirred up to imitate God's goodness. If he's been good to us, we should be good to other people. Bodhi Thone, the co-author of best-selling Christian fiction such as the Zion Chronicles, once worked for John Wayne as a scriptwriter. And in today's Christian woman, Thone tells how this opportunity came about. By the time I was 19, I was commuting to Los Angeles and doing feature articles on different stuntmen and other film personalities for magazines. Four years later, an article that I co-wrote with John Wayne's stuntman won the attention of the Duke himself. One day he called and invited my husband Brock, and he invited me to come to his house. He talked to us as if we were friends, showing keen interest in us as individuals. And from that day on, I began writing for his film company. And Brock helped me with historical research. We were awestruck, she writes. Here was this man who had been in film for 50 years. And he takes a young couple with small children under his wing. And once I asked him, why are you doing this? You're so good to us. He said, because somebody did it for me. God did it for you. God brought people into your life that were good to you. He calls upon you to spread the goodness, to spread the kindness. And in this way, testify of the goodness of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you are indeed the wonderfully good God that you are. And we confess to our shame that all too often we buy Satan's lie, that there's something outside of you that's good that we need, especially to buy the lie that sin is good. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for falling prey to this temptation so many times. Teach us to find our satisfaction in you and in your ways. Teach us, O oh Lord, to be a people that celebrate your goodness. Teach us to be a people that spread your goodness far and wide, especially the goodness of the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And, O oh Lord, we do pray that someone in this room that's still in sin, someone that's doubting your word and doubting your ways and holding back from coming to you. Oh, may they see that they'll be welcomed by a good God and that you have even sent someone to, to go and fetch them. You've sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to die for them and to bring them home to your house where they will dwell with you forever and ever. Help them, O oh Lord, instead of running away from your goodness and running into the arms of that which will destroy them forever, help them, O oh Lord, by your grace, to come to you, the fountain of all good. Help us, O Lord, also to remember these other lessons that we learned. Lessons concerning marriage and concerning racism, population control. Lord, give us a biblical worldview on all these things and help us to be able to interact with the people of this generation and telling them why we believe what we believe. Bless us now as we go our separate ways. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.